The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Father God, we thank you for your word. Not just the word of Scripture, but the word made flesh. And we thank you for those like John who are a voice who witnessed to that word and voices like Isaiah who witnessed to the word coming amongst us. And as we hear your scriptures, Lord, we pray that you would open our ears to hear what you'd have for us and that we could hear anew the song of salvation that you're singing. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good evening. As Jay mentioned, we are in the season of Advent. This is the third Sunday of Advent. So we are well into this season of longing, the season of expectation, and maybe you all are very much ready for Christmas, and I hope that that's the case. But we are still in the midst of this season, this season of waiting, the season of longing, the season of Advent. And I want to begin tonight by reading some words from a letter that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German uh, theologian, and he was arrested for a conspiracy to assassinate uh, Adolf Hitler. Uh, So he was in the midst of those darkest times of the 20th century, and he found himself in prison. And there's a set of letters that have been translated recently that were between him and his fiancée. And the name of the book that this comes from is called Love Letters from Cell 92. So he's writing these letters 
from prison uh, to his beloved. And he speaks in this letter of Advent. And there's some words in here, I think, that are there for us. So he says to his beloved Maria, by the time you receive this letter, it will probably be Advent, a time especially dear to me. A prison cell like this, in which one watches and hopes and performs this or that ultimately unsignificant task, and in which one is wholly dependent on the doors being opened from the outside, is far from an inappropriate metaphor for Advent. Uh, there's some understatement there, far from an inappropriate for, for, uh, metaphor for Advent. I think he's selling himself short there. I think it's a very appropriate metaphor for Advent, particularly the words wholly dependent. We are wholly dependent on something outside of, of ourselves to come and set us free. And that is, um, tells us something about the nature of longing. Think of Bonhoeffer's own sense of longing in that cell, cell number 92. Of course, he's longing for his freedom, that he longs to be out of that cell, longing for the fall of Hitler, the fall of the Third Reich, the longing for the end of the war, longing, of course, to see his family and longing to see his beloved, and yet he is wholly dependent to be freed by someone else. He can't free himself. The door, as he says, is opened from the outside. So he has a sense of longing. Uh, another way to think about it is, if you think of Advent as an instrument, the way I like to think about it, uh, instrument is a cello, or uh, Advent is like a cello, and Christmas is like a trumpet. Uh, you think about a cello, the sound of a cello is sort of, to me, inherently has the sense of mournful longing and yearning just in the sound of the, of the timbre of the instrument. And a trumpet sort of has this sense of joy. And if you think about it, the beginning of the Christian year begins with the sound of longing and yearning, the sound of a cello, and not the sound of a trumpet. I find that to be vastly interesting, that as Christians we say the new year starts with waiting, with expectation, with this sense that we are wholly dependent on something outside of ourselves to set us free. Most of the rest of the world celebrates the new year. We celebrate our own calendar new year with a sense of joy, of going forth in triumph with the sound of the trumpet. But Christians realize, the church has realized, in the constructing of the church year and church calendar, is that we need to begin with that sense of dependence, that sense of yearning and longing. Longing itself is actually a kind of helplessness, if you think about it. Desire has built within it this sense of yearning for something outside of ourselves. We long for things that can't, uh, we can't give ourselves. There are also things that hold us, things that bind us, things that keep us captive, that we can't free ourselves from. We are wholly dependent for the door to be opened from the outside. And yet, as Jay has reminded us over the last two weeks, there are other scripts in our culture, there are alternative stories to this uh, story of being wholly dependent, this story of needing the door to be opened for us. And that larger script in the culture, I think, can be divided into two subcategories. We have the script of stuff. And the script of stuff says that the, what we long for is things, and the act of consuming is where we find fulfillment. So the, the gaining and gleaning of, of of things, of toys, of homes, of furniture, whatever it is, is what will fulfill us. And if Jesus is 
in that story at all. He appears as a kind of Santa Claus figure. Jesus comes alongside of us to give us stuff because stuff is what fulfills us. So Jesus is just the mechanism by which we get the stuff. Now, that may not be tempting to you at all, but it is certainly a compelling script. It's what all the commercials are about right now. It's why they put big red bows on cars and commercials, because we adults still like our toys just as much as our kids do as well. So there's the script of stuff. And there's also the script of self. The idea that we ourselves are the key to our own fulfillment. If we merely would open the door within ourselves and release all our full potential, then we would, we would become everything we were meant to be and all of our desires and all of our yearnings and would be fulfilled. And in that script, if Jesus appears, if he appears at all, he appears as some sort of life coach. Jesus as spiritual mentor who simply comes alongside us to help us become the best version of ourselves. And those two scripts compete with the script that I think is before us in this text from Isaiah. This text from Isaiah is the script of salvation. And the script of salvation is, this, is contained in that letter. We are in a cell, and the door opens from the outside. And we can't open it ourselves. We need someone to come to open the door for us. So that's what we'll have in mind as we look at this passage from Isaiah, which is sort of a song of longing, of expectation, and of fulfillment. And in this song, we hear the voice of this anointed one singing to assure us that our hope is not in vain. So I want to look at two sections of this scripture. I want to look at the first part and the end part. I intentionally uh, chose the whole chapter just so that you could get the full sweep of Isaiah, uh, because Isaiah is just one of, if not the most beautiful books in the Bible. The imagery in it, the poetry in it is just as powerful. But we'll be looking at the first part and the second part, and we'll be calling the first part the song of the Savior, and we'll be calling the second part the song of the saved. So we'll begin by looking at the song of the Savior. You can follow along with your bulletin. This is Isaiah 61. It begins, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Here we have the voice of someone speaking or singing in the first person, speaking of themselves as this anointed one. And that's maybe some language that's overly familiar or maybe not familiar at all, so it's worth revisiting. What is this idea of anointing? It's also in our gospel passage. That's what the word Messiah means. It's what the word Christ means. Messiah is from the Hebrew word for anointed, the word Christ is from the Greek word for anointed. It's the idea of one who is set apart for a special task. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. And it's a picture of the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon one to accomplish the task given to this marked off anointed person. And the voice here says, I have been anointed by the Spirit. The Spirit has come upon me, anointed me to do certain things, to accomplish certain things on behalf of those I've been sent for. This is one in whom the Spirit's power has been stirred. And we prayed that today. That was our collect today. Stir up your power, O Lord. Stir up your power. That is us praying as Advent people, as 
people of longing, people of expectation, for God to act on our behalf. That God must stir up his power in us and in others to set us free. We are wholly dependent upon him to act. And this anointed one is saying, I am stirred up by the power of the Spirit to accomplish these certain things, to set people free. It says, I've come to bring good news to the poor. I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. I've come to proclaim liberty to the captive. You think again of Bonhoeffer sitting in a literal prison cell. He's under no illusions that he is held captive to things. He is under no illusions that that he can somehow set himself free. We find ourselves maybe in a little bit different situation, that we might be in denial about the things that hold us captive, that we might be living under the delusion that we could open the door ourselves, that we could set ourselves free. I know that I have been (laughs) at times in my life and maybe even now under the illusion that I'm more free than I really am, Um, under the illusion that I could walk out of the captivity if I really wanted to. And there's all sorts of ways to be held captive. We can be held captive by lesser desires. We can be held captive by greed, lust, anger. We can be held captive by comfort. We can be held captive by our own small-mindedness. We can be held captive by any number of things. But this anointed one comes and he promises the freedom of, to captives, that he will bind up the brokenhearted, that the prison will be opened for those who are bound. And there are the promise in these, these verses, these opening verses in the song of the Savior, of these great reversals. States that don't normally get undone are undone. They're reversed. Freedom instead of captivity. Light instead of darkness. Beauty instead of ashes. Gladness instead of mourning. Praise instead of faintness. And the question for us, I think, in this is, can we dare to hope that such reversals are possible? Is this just poetry? Is this just a nice way of saying something that maybe is sometimes true, but not in the complete way that is here? Can we dare to hope that such reversals are possible in our own lives, in the lives of the people of All Saints East Dallas, in the lives of our families, in the lives of those around us? Or on some level, are we scared of our own longing for such things because of the fear of disappointment because the fear that this anointed one won't come through for us maybe he will for others but not for us see there's a kind of vulnerability and desire because we're asking for something outside of ourselves to come in and fulfill us but there's also kind of a daring in desire there's a great risk in longing for something so the question for us is can we dare to hope can we dare to ask ourselves can we dare to entertain the question What reversal do I need in my life? What thing do I need to be undone? Some seemingly impossible thing. What captivity do I need to be free from? Where in my life do I need the Lord to stir up his power? And we don't just need this hope as individuals. We need this hope as a community, as a gathered people in the expression of local worship in the church. We need that same sense of desire, that same sense of expectation, that same sense of daring hope. We need to ask that question as a community. Where do we need God to stir up his power among us? If we're really going to 
affect this neighborhood and East Dallas and the places that God has called us. We need God to stir up his power. We are wholly dependent upon him to do so. And that all begins with us daring to admit our own longing, daring to admit our own unfulfilled desire. And the flip side of that, daring to admit our own inability to fulfill our own desires, to reject the script of stuff, to reject the script of self, and to embrace the script of salvation. It all begins with us being able to admit that we are wholly dependent. And so this anointed one comes, and what he declares is the year of the Lord's favor. Favor. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. This was in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. There was this idea built into the very law that the land itself would rest every seven sevens. So on the 49th year, the 50th year would be um, a, a year of great reversals where every debt would be canceled, where every slave would be set free where communal land would go back to its original people. That year of Jubilee is the year of great reversals. And Jesus takes this up as his own programmatic text. He takes these very words up in, the chap- in Luke chapter 4 at the beginning of his ministry. He stands up in the synagogue of his hometown. He's handed this scroll and he reads these verses. And he says, today... These verses are fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus identifies himself with this anointed servant. He identifies himself as the spirit-baptized one, the spirit-anointed one who will bring about these great reversals. We need the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, I hope 2018, for us and for our nation and for our world, is a year of the Lord's favor. Because maybe this year and the year before, and for many years, maybe has not felt like years of the Lord's favor, and that's something worth praying for as well. So we have the song of the Savior in verses uh, 1 through 4, and then if you jump down to verse 10, we have the song of the saved. Verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I take that I to be a different I than in the first four verses, that there's been a shift in voice. Maybe if you want to argue with me about that afterwards, that could be a fun conversation. But I think this is a shift uh, because this is someone who is speaking as one who has received the benefits of this anointed one. Speaking as one who has experienced the favor. So the promise by the, the Savior in the first four verses is that his people will be oaks of righteousness. That they will be planted and established in land and they will be oaks of righteousness and in these verses, there's a return to that image of plant, of life, of fruitfulness, saying, I have now become one who is now fruitful. Listen to these words, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as the garden causes what is sown it to sprout up, so 
the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. I think I take this as a cause and effect relationship that the anointed one has stirred up his power. He has acted on behalf of those held in captivity and they have been freed and not only have they been freed, but they have been brought to this exalted place where they have been given new garments. They are decked themselves in salvation. They are clothed themselves with righteousness and they move forward in fruitfulness. I think sometimes we think of being set free from something in a neutral sense or if I could just get free of that thing, then I would be free of that thing. But God doesn't think of it that way. He wants to free us from those things so that he can make us fruitful. He wants to free us to be fruitful people. And in these verses, in the song of the saved, we hear longing fulfilled. We see this clothing of salvation. We see people covered in righteousness. We see them adorned in beauty as a bride and a groom are adorned in beauty. And we see them as planted, established people who are going to bring forth fruitfulness. See, we are set free. We're the door is open from the outside for us to walk out, so, not so that we can go do what we want, but so that we can go and be fruitful, to go the freedom to become what we were truly meant to be. That's how God thinks of freedom, and that's the freedom that he wants for us. So the fulfillment of our longing is ultimately fruit, that we would be fruitful people. Desire is not meant to terminate on itself, and that is why ultimately the script of stuff and the script of self are ultimately self-defeating because they are a cycle. It's the self turning in on the self over and over again. But the script of salvation looks outward for its fulfillment and moves into fruitfulness. Let the earth bring forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what it's sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So the seeds were planted. This was a passive action. But then that, those seeds come forth in active fruitfulness. We have been planted by the Lord to grow up into fruitfulness. That righteousness is a fruit of desire. That praise is a fruit of desire. He will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. What is the fruit? Praise and righteousness that we are freed to be fruitful, and then we are freed to praise. But that fruit doesn't come out of nowhere. It begins with that longing. It begins in the cell. It begins with the realization that we are wholly dependent. It begins with the realization that the door opens from the outside. With all longing, there must be a recognition of our dependency that we are like the seed that must be planted. If we will be oaks of righteousness, we must allow the Lord to plant us. If we would be fruitful, we must allow the Lord to free us. I began with a quote from one German theologian. I'll end with a quote from another German theologian. Alfred Delp was a Jesuit priest who died in a concentration camp. And he has a book about Advent called Advent of the Heart. And he says something, I think, very helpful for us. Because here is someone who knew something about longing for light in the midst of darkness. Here is someone who knew about longing for freedom in the midst of captivity. And he tells us in the midst of the Advent mindset and the Advent posture, we have to be on our guard. And he says this, 
this entire message about God's coming, about the day of salvation, about redemption drawing near, will be merely divine game-playing or sentimental lyricism unless it is grounded upon two clear findings of fact. The first finding, we must have insight into and alarm over the powerlessness and futility of human life in relation to its ultimate meaning and fulfillment. What does he mean by that? He's saying it is ultimately futile for humans to believe that they can fulfill themselves. That, I don't think that's fatalistic. I think that that's a biblical realism. I think that that's what Isaiah is telling us. I think that's what John the Baptist is telling us, is that we cannot ultimately fulfill ourselves. That we are creatures of desire, but we have to be fulfilled from the outside. The second finding, the promise of God to be on our side to come and meet us. We recognize that we can't fulfill ourselves, and we also simultaneously recognize that the promise of God is to be on our side, to come and meet us. That the song of salvation sung by the anointed one in Isaiah, taken up as programmatic for his whole ministry as Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, is not, are not just nice words, not just poetic images, but they are the truth, and they, they are the good news for the poor. That's the good news for us, the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. So we have this one more week of Advent, and I would encourage you in this last week to think about your own desires. Think about those places in your life that feel unfulfilled. Think about those places in your life where you need the great reversal, where you need the Savior to come and undo whatever it is that needs to be undone. What are the things that hold us captive? And the realization which is ultimately a graceful, gracious realization is that we are wholly dependent and that the door must be opened from the outside. Let us pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And more than we thank you for your word, we thank you for your son, who is this anointed savior who comes into the world on our behalf to set us free to make us rich where we are poor, to give us gladness where we are mournful, to undo things that don't seem like they can be undone. So we ask you now, Lord, in the rest of this service and our lives as we go forth from here, that you would stir up your power in us to free us first, to fulfill our desires, and to make us fruitful. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.